Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm very excited to reintroduce and introduce, in this case, uh, the guys from Northern P- Football Podcast with Peter Galindo, Alex Gange Ruzik, and uh, a warm welcome to Ben Steiner as well uh, of, of the podcast. Thanks so much, guys, for taking the time and coming on, and uh, how's it going? Happy to be on. Very happy to uh, to be back, Alex. Thanks for the invite. This time with our new host, I guess, and <laughs> since the last time we were on. Yeah, I mean, I'm cer- certainly happy to be here. Uh, I have followed your podcast last little while, and you've had some pretty big heavy hitters on the on the podcast. So certainly, some good work you're doing, and I'm excited to be here. Thanks, th- thanks, Ben. Mm-hmm. That uh, that means a lot, and um, I-, I love having my my twin Alex on on the podcast as well. So uh, this should be a fun one, and when we talked on the last podcast i just want to go a little bit about you guys cover canada soccer on and everyone should check out your podcast all things uh, canadian soccer but we talked about the the soccer media landscape in canada and what might happen after a world cup which happened in the fall for you guys and and ben as well uh although i didn't ask him that question the first time what have you what have you kind of seen in the industry since the World Cup? What are the changes? Are there changes? Just maybe give us kind of an outline of the the soccer media landscape now and what you think about it in Canada. New guest answers first. Benjamin, you can take this one first. Uh, it's, it's a difficult one to look at because has there necessarily been a greater interest that sort of like an explosion of interest that maybe some people expected? I don't necessarily think so. Um, I think part of that issue has been that MLS is not on TV regularly. Um, so it's difficult to find that support for the local sort of heavy hitting teams. Um, the CPL support has not gone through the roof in terms of attendance uh, this year. So there wasn't that that boost there. Um, and I, I don't know the actual subscription numbers, but it's the same people talking about the CPL. It's the same people talking about MLS. There's not necessarily a greater interest um, in terms of, like following the national team, I think there is a bit of a, a more targeted interest from a, a lot of the sort of top sports networks. Um, but I wouldn't say that there's much of a, a change or an explosion of interest after the World Cup. Could it have been different if Canada went on a miraculous run to the quarterfinal? Probably. Um, but the fact that they went 0-3 and the four of us know that like they played well and that, that like the underlying numbers suggested that they were a lot better than the results showed but that doesn't matter to the general public. That doesn't matter to the people who can change the the way that soccer is consumed and followed in this country. So I don't think anything's really changed since the World Cup. Yeah, I'd agree for sure. And the overall excitement factor, I think, of Canada qualifying for that World Cup, it led to a massive media frenzy, understandably. But even still, there weren't a lot of Canadian media in Qatar. Part of that is probably due to cost. Um, because, you know, for me myself, like it, it, it costs a lot of money to go over there <laughs> and I'm sure networks looking at it, even with the historic factor, even with the uniqueness of the story, they probably had reservations just sending one or two people over there and having to pay just for the accommodation costs. They were absolutely absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that once the tournament started, the I mean, for example, I was busy every day working 12, 13, 14 hour days just because everybody wanted to talk about not just the tournament, but the team specifically. And that was really the the nice change, whether it was CBC reaching out, you know, smaller radio networks reaching out, 
whoever it was, everybody wanted to talk about this. But then once the tournament ended, understandably, everyone kind of lost interest because, well, our team isn't involved anymore. So therefore, we're not going to dedicate that much time to it. And I think the hope was if the team had maybe gotten a solid result, even if it was a point, say, against Belgium or uh, they kept every single game close, like let's say they lost every single game by a goal or less, then maybe everyone could have looked at that and thought, okay, big picture for a first World Cup in 36 years against some of the best teams in the world, given all the challenges that that team faced, no tier one opponents bar Uruguay before the World Cup since 2018 or 2017. Can't remember the last time, but it was a long, long time ago. Um, They had fewer players in tier one leagues than any other country by far in their group. Um, Not bad, but after the World Cup, the fact that just not a lot of media seemed to take a lot of interest, I I don't think, unsurprisingly, wasn't shocking to me, sadly. Um, and I think it's it's partially due to, I think, networks maybe realizing the potential of the team and maybe what they're capable of. But then also, I think the PR side also saying, all right, we need to get our players out there more. We got to give them more media opportunities. So it works both ways. And that's what I tweeted after the team got eliminated was don't waste this opportunity because the eyes of the world were on the team. The eyes of the country were on the team. And everyone wanted to talk about them. Make sure you stay on top of that so that they stay relevant. If that March window was any indication, you already kind of saw a bit of a return to the mean. Hopefully this summer kind of brings a bit more excitement in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess worth noting that in March, I guess equivalent to say 2019 when Canada was in a similar position, like I remember Nations League US, BMO, it was growth because I mean the the press box was packed and packed in 2019, but it was all Americans. There's like a handful of Canadians sprinkled amongst like the entire crew of Americans because it was obviously Canada US uh, at BMO Field. Whereas now, for you know, it was Canada Honduras. There was uh, a bigger core of Canadian media, so I think it has slowly grown. But you know, Peter is right in the sense that if you're expecting like a huge uptick where it was just going to double, triple, quadruple, that didn't happen right away. That and that's going to be interesting to see how that process goes. Because obviously there's a World Cup in 2026, so they can't have that excuse of saying, oh, we're waiting until they qualify. We're waiting to do something big. It's kind of something like, yeah, okay, a Nations League game against Honduras might not be the, the sexiest thing for, for a big TV network to cover. But there are, you know, two tr- uh, trophy uh you know, tournaments this summer where there's big trophies on the line. You've got a Copa America next summer. Uh, you'll have whatever that expanded Gold Cup in 2025 leading right into a World Cup in 2026. So if that was maybe the hangover for for the media, they kind of have no excuse now going forward because it's just big game after big game this fall. There could easily be some top friendlies either in Canada or elsewhere. Like if they're not showing up for those games, then you're going to, you know, really get an idea of where that that interest is heading into 2026 for the men's team and heck that with the women's world cup as well this summer you're going to kind of see which networks are, are throwing their time and money at that as well which will be a, a huge indicator versus uh you know what you know what the interest was like for the the men's tournament because hey on the, the women's side as well um you know, just naturally they're going to have a better chance at going out and 
winning some, you know, getting, making a deep run in the tournament. Whereas for the men, it was just win a game, get a point, right? The the expectations are so much lower. So if, you know, networks want a story there, there's going to be that, that story at the, the women's world cup, uh, you know, more potential for one. And, you know, for, for, for the media, they do love that sort of potential. So interested to see how, if they jump on that. But there is interest too. And, and, and you saw that in spades during the qualifying cycle when the women won gold, um, like, I can only speak about, you know, Sportsnet's performances in terms of like what the articles got, but th- they were among the most read pieces during a time when the Toronto Maple Leafs were were winning and, and TV numbers were comparable to NHL games involving all Canadian teams. Like, obviously it helps that the team is successful and they're winning and then people will glom onto that, but I'm a big proponent of build it and they will come. And there's very clearly interest in all of the Canadian soccer content, not just the national teams, but also CPL and MLS. Like one thing I told these guys, um, I'm pretty sure I mentioned it on the podcast as well. When I debuted for one soccer article wise, um, I wrote a piece on just the Canadian standouts from the Canadian championship quarterfinals. And I did that piece because, you know, I, I wanted to, to cover Canadian soccer more. I wanted to cover the domestic game more And I thought, you know what, even if it doesn't do too well engagement wise, I don't care. I just want to put the content out there and show people that there's just more to to check out. And I was blown away by the amount of engagement that a mainly CPL related piece got. So it kind of goes to show you that if you put the content out there, people are going to engage with it. And then the more content you do around that, the more they're going to associate whatever outlet or network it is with hey they produce really good quality content on mls on cpl on canadian soccer in general i'm going to check them out more that's how you build the base you 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 can't just kind of find a shortcut and i find sometimes a lot of the bigger networks especially try that that avenue and it doesn't always really work out for them at least in terms of long-term succession planning Mm, that's interesting huh i i want to ask you peter because i think your story in this with the Canadian men's national team is just incredibly fascinating. You have now worked you in the nation's league. You worked as a performance analyst going from being a journalist to, to working as part of, you know, a technical staff for, for Canada soccer. What was that experience like? And how did you go from being in the media to, to working as a coach? And I know you're doing, I believe the gold cup as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so just tell us a little bit about that. Cause I think that's such a cool and interesting story. Yeah, it still hasn't quite sunk in yet either, which is which is kind of funny because uh, it's been about five, six months since I think the initial kind of conversation started. But to go back, um, shortly after the World Cup, I was, you know, kind of checking out some possible job openings just, you know, in media and whatnot. I actually got one offer that eventually fell through. But um, right around, I'd say the end of January, I was back in Vancouver just visiting family Hadn't seen them in a couple months, figured out, oh, you know what? I got some time now. Let's go back. Um, and I, you know, reached out to John, met John for a coffee in Vancouver. Um, Cause I figured there was a bit of downtime between windows. So, you know, what's the harm we met up and um, you know, one of the things that, that he had been talking to me about was, you know, how he wanted to obviously bring in a little bit more expertise on all sides, right? Not just the coaching side, but also on the data side. And so uh, the role was offered to me tentatively um, sort of shortly after that, did a little bit of a trial run just to see if I was a right fit, obviously. And then 
um, was offered the chance to go to the March camp, maybe about three weeks before it started. Mm -hmm. And um, from the moment I got in there, it was, first of all, one of the most intense, but also one of the most fun experiences I think I've ever had because everybody there obviously is, is, they're they're tailored towards one goal and that is to make sure the team has the best possible performances they can on the pitch and every single member of staff has worked so incredibly diligently and around the clock to to make sure that that happens and i don't think enough praise can go out to everybody on that staff from the operations managers to the equipment guys to you know the medical staff everybody just does a hell of a job and they really do deserve a whole lot of credit for the work that they do behind the scenes, which doesn't often get looked at, understandably. Um, but just to anybody listening, like if, if you kind of maybe want to know the secret to success, it's that culture that's been built in there. And it starts from John, but then it trickles all the way down. Um, and, and that's really why I think it's not a surprise why they had such an amazing run during qualifying. Because once you get into that environment, you see what it's like. And you're like, okay, now it makes a lot more sense. Um, the actual journey towards this it is very unorthodox because even the people who the few people anyways who've made the transition from journalism to the club side or the federation side a lot of them will have had education in data science computer science some sort of adjacent equivalent to working in the field they just so happen to be in journalism for a while they make that transition and you can maybe sort of understand why they got those opportunities because they at least had some sort of education. Maybe they had coaching certifications, whatever the case. I had none of that. So I'm pretty much entirely self-taught when it comes to coding, when it comes to, to data analysis, when it comes to tactical analysis, all this stuff. I'm going for formal training now in terms mm. of coding, in terms of coaching, in terms of all this, just to help hone my craft. But that's what I think is, is is so crazy is that, I mean, not to sound like I'm tooting my own horn here, but to, to be in journalism and to be trained to be a journalist, to go from that to this is, it, it, it's, it is still quite wild to think about. And, you know, it's, it's, it's awesome to, to know that um, John had the trust in me to bring me aboard. And I'm, I'm hoping that I'm rewarding that faith now by obviously doing an okay enough job in March clearly to come back for the gold cup. So hopefully that's uh, that continues to leading to more opportunities. And I want to go off that quickly for, for all of all three of you, because you mentioned the kind of the, the stats and, and the coding and, and what I find really interesting. And, and I want to know what you guys think is what are, what do you th- make of advanced stats? What, what role does it play in how you evaluate or, or capture the game of football or soccer? And, and what are maybe some of the best stats that you think are out there? Um, and just maybe just talk about just the role of advanced stats in the game now and, and how you guys see it. I mean, Alex and Peter are definitely a little more attuned to advanced stats than I am, but I think generally uh, within sports that have a flow, so discounting things like baseball and golf, really, um, but within sports that have a flow, you have to mix sort of the eye test with the advanced stats because not everything can be told by the numbers and not everything can be told by just what you're watching. Um, but I think that's what makes sort of advanced stats and performance analysts so valuable to teams is they're able to to mix those two and uh, 
translated it into useful language for for players and coaches who might not totally understand it at, at a similar level. So I think it has a critical place, but it can't be uh, erasing the eye test. I think you can see the problems that come from that uh, from various organizations that rely maybe too much on statistical analysis. Yeah, I mean, for for me, it's a constant not battle, but um, it's always something I I think you have to evaluate. Because I, I watch a lot, but also I try to pour through the data. And I think the biggest thing I've tried to learn is, you know, the years have gone on is just like always to question yourself. I think that's an important thing. Like when you're reading data, you kind of have to sometimes sit back like, what is this telling you? What is this knowing? You know, an exercise I love to do is just, you know, when I watch a game, I just go through the stats after and I'm like, does this match what I see? How does it match what I saw? you know, and, and vice versa. And I think it, it helps a lot so that when you are, say, looking at at raw data of, of, of something, you can kind of look at it and be able to get not a full picture, of course, because if you're never seeing anything and seeing the stats, you can't get a full picture, but it does help a lot of what, you know, because if you've seen something over and over and you're like, okay, in this game, if, you know, this X stat is very high and this stat is low and, you know, this player struggled at this, you can kind of infer that, uh, you know, it, it, you by virtue of having seen a lot of, uh, you know, games and have kind of parsed that all together, you can, uh, you know, help create, uh, you know, you can look at things and, and get some certain co- conclusions for it. So it is something where I think stats do play a huge role just because ultimately, you know, as someone once said, stats don't lie in the sense that, you know, they're numbers, right? At the end of the day, they're they're facts, but there's also something where they're not the be all end all, right? They're, they're, there's, uh, you know, stats will uh, they can sometimes not lie to you, but deceive you, right? I said the, 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 they can, you know, maybe not paint the the full picture, but certainly in soccer, there's a, a lot of stats you can take, uh, you know, away. I think some of what we've learned over the years is passing stats, possession stats, useless, uh, you know, in the sense that, yes, they can tell you a lot if a player completes a high number of passes or a team has possession, but ultimately, uh, you know, in soccer, it's how you get the ball to to dangerous areas. Players who do that, uh, you know, and, you know, teams that do that will do well. And then also teams that keep the ball out of danger areas. That's why a stat like XG is so key, uh, just in terms of if it's telling you a team gets the ball to danger areas, often they might not score all the time. Finishing is a very random, it's a very tough uh, thing. But typically, if you have the ball in the six yard box versus you have the ball at the, in, you know, 25 yards out, you're going to score more from the six yard box. And I think, you know, it's important to find players who can progress the ball, who can, you know, make those dangerous crosses with success, who can, you know, get into those high XG areas. And I mean, Peter could probably dive more to, to, to those in more detail, but that's why stats like, you know, XG buildup, which players are building, you know, helping in the, the buildup uh, in, in, in MLS goals added is a great stat just because it tells you which players are typically getting the, the ball into the area where uh, they help their teams get more goals. Uh, Cause I think that's kind of what we we've seen over, over soccer. Cause I think the, it's somewhere in the data revolution, people are like, Oh, you know, Man City and Barcelona hold a lot of the ball. It's just everyone should hold on to the ball and possessions be all end all. But they're kind of realizing that why was Jose Mourinho's teams in the 2010 so annoying to play against? Because they were fine not having the ball. The thing is they kept people out of their box and got the ball to, to the other box. And ultimately in soccer, that's the, the biggest goal. And anything that helps teams do that uh, typically does well. There's no perfect approach. There's no, you know, one one size fits all way to do it. And uh, that's what I love about the game, how, how it varies and how there's so many different ways of looking at it and analyzing it. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, I think you put that really well. And like, that's what I find interesting in soccer is just 
because it's not a game like like baseball where it's very easily attainable where you can look at just oh he gets on base or he does not or like it's it's a it's as you said I think Ben said it's a flow game right like hockey it's tough too as well so I uh, I think you you guys said that very well I want to ask you move a little bit now to the team to the national teams and you guys cover them day in and day out there's been a lot of strife between the men's and, and women's national team against the, the Canadian uh, Soccer Federation and, and Canada Soccer with the CSB deal. There's a new president and Charmaine Crooks. Just for you guys, I know you've talked about it a bit on your pod, but where are we at with the relationship between the national teams uh, and, and the federation? And maybe what do you think might change with the new regime or maybe not uh, as well? I think at this point, we're at a place of sort of rebuilding those bridges and rebuilding those connections. Um, they've got a new new president for at least the next year in Charmaine Crooks. They've got uh, a new leader in, in Jason DeVos as well, who I think is probably a, a strong hire considering he knows the game. He knows where the game has been in this country. And I think that's something that was dearly missed with with guys like Earl Cochran, with guys like Scott Mitchell at the, at the top of CSB. Um, but that's not to say that those 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 factors are not critical factors in the journey of this game in Canada. Every federation goes through this. It's seen around the world. It's growing pains for Canada. They'll get through it, um, but they're just trying to to mend some of those connections and some of those uh, situations that have happened in the past. Um, it's not good. It's happening in every sport in Canada as as well. Um, but it's not a situation that's unique to Canada soccer. It happens around the world. It happens in every sport in Canada. Um, so it, it's growing pains. It's becoming um, good enough to have a seat at the big kids table when it comes to world soccer and world sport. Um, that's something that Canada soccer has never really had. Of course, their hands are a bit tied with that CSB deal. Um, but that's also something that has proved critical to the growth of the game in Canada. And I think probably proved critical to getting to the World Cup in the first place. So there, there's a, a lot of different aspects in it. But they're in a decent spot now, a better spot than they were, say, a year ago when they were canceling the game with Iran and then not showing up for the game against Panama. Um, they're in a stronger spot now, um, even though it might seem a little bit more shaky. I'd just say they probably everyone wasn't ready for the men making the World Cup in 2022. I think that's kind of where all the, the cracks showed up because then the money, you know, the big windfall comes in and it's where is it going? What's the situation? What's the payout? Uh, and you kind of maybe realize some of the, you know, past processes and, and, and shortcuts and, you know, how things have gone where, uh, you know, or, or lack of foresight in certain cases where, you know, maybe the, the decision makers are planning on a world where the men finally make it in 2026 versus accelerating their timeline and making it in 2022 and everything that comes with it. Uh, and then you just kind of realize all the cracks that were there, such as, you know, you, you put all this time to, to get a men's league for the 2026 World Cup. You hosted a World Cup in 2015 and have no tangible, you know, leftover in the sense of there's no women's league that came off the back of that. There's no women's sports team, like professional team uh, off the back of that. And, you know, all those things kind of add up. So, Cause I think it's something where, look, I, I, I think everyone has very similar interests and goals. I think they want 
both men's and women's national teams to do well. They want there to be a pipeline of, of you know, youth national teams feeding those teams, that there's leagues for these those national teams to then, you know, to draw off so that they can, you know, all one day go to Europe and that the, the grassroots side of the game is healthy. But just ultimately with, you know, all these accelerated timelines it exposed, you know, especially financially exposed a lot of gaps that, uh, you know, are, are just now still being filled. And, you know, that's where all these relate. We talk about all the relationships with the the, the players and the federations that kind of break down off the back of that. So just hopefully now that, you know, a lot of that is, you know, behind, hopefully that, you know, they can just focus on, on the future. Cause I think that's again, what everyone wants. I think at the end of the day, everyone wants a system where you can look across Canada and there's sports teams all over professional ones, men's and women's that kids all over can dream of, you know, playing for their local clubs. And then maybe had one day heading to Europe or who knows, maybe one day the Canadian leagues will be the spot to, to head out and play in, in 10, 20 years, uh, you know, similar to how the growth in MLS has just been so accelerated, uh, you know, by them just having a league and putting time into it and NWSL as well. Um, and then from there, hopefully we can just see a healthy ecosystem because that's ultimately what everyone wants. But it's just one of those where, um, you know, sometimes the, the there's also financial realities that are associated with that. And as we saw uh, during the last year, uh, those were very heavily strained. Um, I wanted to go a little bit to the the Nations League. Obviously, uh, it's it's starting uh, on Thursday. We're recording this on Monday. Um, Canada plays Panama. The winner of that would play USA and Mexico. Maybe just what do you guys think of their chances of winning the tournament? Do they have the right roster? Like, is what do you make of the roster that they took? And um, yeah, just give us a little bit of a, a rundown of, of their chances at the Nations League uh, this week. I'd say they're pretty good. I think they they got also the, you know, fortune, I guess you could say, of, of a good draw. Not really because it's performance-based. And, you know, probably CONCACAF is not used to a tournament where the U.S. and Mexico are not meeting in the final. So they're probably a bit tripped out by uh, how that all ended up going for them. But um, I think it's something where, look, Canada, they got Panama. Pan- make no mistake, Panama is a good team. They're an annoying team to play against. They've got a good group of young players. They were very... Uh, you know, ahead of where anyone expect them to be, even be close to in the World Cup uh, qualifiers, just because, you know, one second they're there fighting to barely get past Curacao. But I think, you know, those that experience and how good they were at the Gold Cup that summer kind of just pushed them to to do well in qualifiers. Um, so this Panama team is, is in a good spot. But for Canada as well, uh, look, it's a bit of an older squad. I think that was maybe not a full surprise. I think this is a chance kind of like a last dance for for a lot of these players to, you know, just to win a trophy, so to speak, you know, guys like Atiba Hutchinson, you know, 40 years old, never won that trophy. You know, you just, what it would mean for, uh, you know, a true legend of Canadian soccer to lift a trophy. Uh, that's obviously a, a big goal, this tournament, but ultimately it's a two games over a short amount of time. You're probably not going to see more than, 15, 16 players anyways, just because you're going to want to play your, your main players. You, you want to build a little continuity from what you saw last window. Uh, so I think because of that, it's a lot of the same guys at the top. It's going to be your Alfonso Davies, your Jonathan da- uh, Davids, your, you know, Tay John Buchanan's, Alistair Johnston's, Ismael Kone, Stefan Ustakios, and really going to be their time to to carry this team to the trophy. But, you know, there's also, as we saw during the World Cup qualifiers, Canada's, uh, you know, strength is also in uh, just the overall team and, and and the depth. And I think 
a lot of those guys will will be key. And, uh, you know, because of that chance to beat Panama, it's about as straightforward as it gets. And then from there, a final against U.S. or Mexico will be tough because whoever wins that game will have the huge fan advantage in Vegas. Uh, both teams, obviously, it's in the U.S. and then Mexico always travels well. But those are the sorts of experience this Canada team has lacked over the few, last few years and is about as good as experience as you can get in CONCACAF. Uh, so may as well go after it. And, you know, that, that if they win a trophy, that they will pay off immensely towards uh, the run up to the World Cup and Copa America and all that that awaits them. I mean, it, it's certainly an exciting time. I, I think, as Alex highlighted, it chance for a last dance for a lot of these players um, to really put a cap on their careers. I wouldn't be surprised if they win the trophy, whether we see a lot of those veterans sort of step away. Uh, including sort of headlined by Atipa Hutchinson. And I don't think you'd see those guys at the at the Gold Cup. I'm not sure whether you would anyways, but it's such a great opportunity for Canada to finally get a trophy for the first time since 2000. Um, of course, it, it's the Nations League. It was made just a few years ago, um, and there wasn't necessarily a lot of focus or lure around it, a lot of judgment around like what this Nations League would be, replacing friendlies and such. But now when you're in the running for an actual trophy, um, you can see that 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 attention is there and that desire to win is there. Every player has it. Stefan Estacchio said at the last camp, if they're not winning trophies, what are they doing with their careers? So the emphasis is on winning a trophy. Um, I think it would help springboard this next generation of Canadian players. Heck, it might start to entice some dual nationals that are iffy about joining Canada as well, um, especially if the U.S. take the, take the trophy. Um, but it, it's an exciting opportunity for Canadian soccer. Will it resonate with the Canadian public? I'm not sure. Um, cause it, it's not like, it's not Euro. Um, of course, Canada could never compete in Euro, but like, it's not going to compare to that. The gold cup won't, I don't think Canada wins the gold cup either, just considering the, the squad that's likely going. Um, but it's a fantastic opportunity and it's one that Canada should take on and, and do their best to win because you won't know if it can entice the Canadian public. You don't, you won't know if it can bring soccer to that next level in Canada unless you win. it. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. I, I want to ask you quickly about that because you mentioned dual nationals. I know everyone loves to talk about it. So I'm going to just put it into the fire and uh, into the ether and ask you guys, uh, what do you make of Aiden Morris? I know a lot of people wanted him to to join Canada um, what other dual nationals, because you got, you mentioned, uh, it Ben that maybe the gold cup is a younger roster with maybe a couple dual nationals, maybe just give us a little bit of, a of where you see some dual nationals. And if you think any might, uh, finally join Canada after, uh, Twitter being ablaze for just wanting them for, for a long time. I'll let Alex and Peter dive into them more sort of individually and specifically, but I think, in the case of a lot of dual nationals, they're not necessarily players that step in to to your lineup, to your 11. Uh, I think Ada, Ada Morris is probably different, and, and there's definitely players that are in a different class, but there's a lot of dual nationals that are enticing only because there's something that you don't have and you want something shiny and new. Um, we've seen that through the years in Canadian soccer. Um, it's definitely a little bit more focused on now, but I, not every dual national is going to completely change the national team. Sure, some could have. Tamari could have. Um, Jefferson potentially could. But so so could Aiden Morris. But there's not that for every single player. Like, I think that John Herdman's comments about needing more youth camps 
and how detrimental that's been to recruitment is spot on. Like how many times have, not even just us, but fans have said this as well. Where are the youth camps? Where are these opportunities for players? And I understand you maybe have to take this with a grain of salt considering who it's coming from. But when Stefan Mitrovich was on our podcast towards the end of 2021, we asked him point blank, if Canada had more youth camps, do you think you would have accepted those call-ups and participated with the youth teams? And he said, absolutely, I would have. And when you go back to that April 2022 camp, in the preparation for the CONCACAF U-20s, all the dual nationals there were just so excited and thrilled to be representing Canada, to have that opportunity to wear the shirt. And you look at a couple of them, namely Jesse Costa, now getting opportunities for Portugal, and you just wasted those opportunities by not having more camps. I understand that they're not going to get another chance to to qualify for tournaments until 2025 at least, but this is where you start to lose guys because Daniel Jefferson's in the English system now. You got Luca Koliosho accepting Italy U19 call-ups. You got Nico Sigur going to Croatia. Mitrovic clearly declared for Serbia. Um, the, the list goes on and on and on here. So without those opportunities, you're going to lose players because then Aiden Morris has those opportunities with the US. Yes, he's born there, but he had the national team opportunities at youth level to get familiar with the system to build a name for himself. So now that he has the opportunity to make that step up to the senior team, of course, he's going to feel a better connection with the U S even though in his mind, he might think, yeah, maybe the opportunities are better with Canada, just in terms of starting. You can help with what your heart feels. The heart wants what the heart wants. And it wants the U S clearly in part because of the fact he had those opportunities at youth level. And without those coming our way for Canada, you're going to start to see more stories like this. And that's why it's so crazy that, yeah, they qualify for the World Cup and that's obviously going to open up other chances for some players. But it's also a reminder that it's not just that simple where qualifying for World Cup is all of a sudden going to completely change the fortunes. You have to still put in the work and put in the investment into these other areas as well. And I think it's also like, yeah, a lot's changed really in the last five years. Because I'd say you know, the beginning of when John Herdman comes in, the squad was so different to where it was at now. And so many players that we know of had not broken out or even, you know, weren't even close to to breaking out. Guys like Alfonso Davies were, you know, finishing up his last season in MLS when John Herdman uh, came around, if I'm not mistaken, because it was in 2018. Um, so it's at a point where there is, you're, you're, you're asking any dual, every dual national that moves. Like, remember what's Alessandro Busti doing these days, right? Like you remember all these guys are getting called in. Um, you know, a guy like Palu Tabla was in the Barca system and they're just all over it. Get him in, call him up. Whereas now it's like you, you kind of obviously for the first team have to pick and choose because you're not just, you know, parachuting guys in if they're not going to, you know, fit the system right away or fit or at the level right away. And that's the tough thing with a lot of these dual nationals because, you know, a guy like Daniel Jebison, lots of potential, so much potential there, but he hasn't maybe scratched enough of it where if you're looking at some of Canada's striker options, how are you going to explain? First of all, Jonathan David and Kyle Aaron, they're locked in. They score goals for fun with the national team. They're in a top five league. And even, I guess, you know, maybe before the last few months, but if you're a guy like Ike Ugbo last year was, you know, had scored a bunch of goals in the top five league. How are you going to, you know, explain him? Oh yeah. This kid who is sporadically appearing in the championship, but has immense potential is going to be dropped in and, and, you know, into the pecking order. 
And that's the tough thing now, whereas like Canada has an ex- established first team squad and they can't be parachuting guys in. And because of that, that's where the youth camps become even more key because, uh, you know, there is going to be a time where these guys are going to break out when it comes down to making a decision. It does help when you look back like, OK, I did have, you know, a couple great tournaments with Canada. I maybe played with a few players that are already in the national team. Um you know, are already in that fold, especially now, because look, Canada, you know, what's beautiful about Canada is it's such a diverse, it's such a, you know, multicultural country. And you see that the World Cup, just all the stories of all these players that were there, you know, just, you know, I love how multicultural Canada's uh, squad is, uh, you know, because of that, there's going to be a lot of dual nationals in, in the future. So, uh, you know, there's going to be players that don't always feel fully Canadian. That's normal, right? That's the beautiful part of diversity. Canada is a spot where you can feel Canadian, but you can also feel, you know, Croatian or, or you know, or Senegalese or, or Peruvian, uh, you know, or all Johnny you know, Infantino what, over here. Today, I feel exactly. like Senegalese. <laughs> exactly. That's Johnny Infantino's speech was misplaced. Apparently, it was, a, it was just a plea to Canadian dual nationals. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, because of that, you do need these uh, youth camps where where players are going and representing the shirt so that when it comes down to it and, uh, you know, they're making a decision, they can look back on those experiences fondly because, yeah, you have to remember that guys like Jonathan David could have easily picked the U.S. or Haiti. Alfonso Davies could have, you know, picked, I think, Ghana, Liberia, uh, all these countries. But at the end of the day, they played youth camps together when they were U15, U16, U17. They had those chances to be in. So when Canada came calling, they weren't sitting there like, ooh, this new team that I'm eligible for is parachuting in. And that's the tough part with Aiden Moore specifically. Great player. would He's one of those guys that would step in immediately, I think, amongst dual nationals because there are a lot of talented ones. But among them, those that would step in immediately, he's probably one of just a few. But because he grew up playing youth camps with the U.S., he grew up in America. Uh, his heart is with the U.S. for now. And, you know, because of that, it just you're in an uphill battle where if the U.S. comes calling tomorrow, they have a great chance of getting him. And so if you're Canada, you're just hoping they don't, you know, accept and you're going to have to work with them over time. Whereas if you had those youth camps, you could have been uh, on this process a lot earlier down the road. My question is, will and obviously Peter will be at the gold cup. Is that in a way, even though you would be cap tied if you played for, because it sounds as though they will bring a younger uh, roster. Is that almost their sort of youth camp or like a way in which to allure uh, dual nationals into to the team? Yes and no, because the one problem with the gold cup that's often overlooked, not problem, it's just reality. It's because it's the final tournament of CONCACAF players who are included in the squad they don't have to play if they're included in the squad it has some big ramifications for cap tying as far as i fully understand the rule like if you're in the squad that's pretty much it it's like if you go to a world cup in the squad you're cap tied that's forever it's it you can't go to a world cup and then switch after Mm -hmm. and tournaments like gold cup euros uh, Copa America, all the final tournaments have similar implications. So it's tougher for dual nationals because if Daniel Jebison's in the squad, he's he's Canadian, he's cap tied. It's over. It's, uh-huh. you don't you know, whereas if he called up to a friendly window, you're called up to a nation's league and don't see the field or a world cup qualifier, but you don't see the field. Or if you're under 21, you only see the field three times and you wait the three years, there are avenues out. Whereas gold cups and world cups, those are very final decisions. And I think that's why we didn't see guys like a Jebison at the world cup. Cause you know, first of all, I don't think he would have made it, but also I don't think he was ready. 
Uh, and I think that's going to sway a few dual nationals away from this world, this gold cup because of uh, that. But I do think there will be a lot of younger players, especially those who are maybe already kind of leaning towards, you know, representing Canada that will step up. But if for those who are expecting maybe a, a Jebison or a Coley show, that implication is there. And it's reasons why I wouldn't expect to see either of them at the gold cup, unless all of a sudden something over the next few weeks changes, or they're like, you know what, I want to be Canadian. I want to go represent them at the gold cup because uh, even if they do and they don't play, well, they'll be Canadian uh, for the rest of their international careers. I think another difference between like a, a Gold Cup being their pseudo youth camp is there's pressure at the Gold Cup. It's a tournament. It's a top tier tournament uh, with like a major international trophy on the line. Um, whereas if you have like a U20 CONCACAF camp, there's not that pressure. There's a focus on sort of developing as players developing as teammate developing as a group um and that's sort of where those connections are built but you can't forget that like the the players have friends on the team as well and if they've been playing with those friends since they were at the u15 level well then they'll want to continue with those friends at the, at the higher level and the chances of both friends being necessarily dual nationals and like leave jumping ship after going through u15 u17 u18 like after going through through that um is a lot less likely. So Canada needs to be building those connections from the youth level and then start introducing those players at tournaments like the gold cup, where you might not be sending an off your gold cup, or you might not be sending your, your, your top team. Um, but like you need to start building those connections. You need to start developing those players in your system, creating that pride for the, the federation, creating that pride for the country um, at a much earlier level. Yeah, I, I want to go a little bit like uh, to, to an interesting different topic because um, we talked about Jonathan David obviously playing for Canada at the youth. Now is he obviously Kyle Lyron is the most prolific scorer, but if per game or uh, per goals per game, uh, Jonathan David leads uh, Canada. Where do you think he goes this this summer? I think I still I asked uh, you, your friend uh, Josh Deming about this. Um, he I have no clue. I don't really see him being linked to anywhere kind of concretely. What, where do you think he might go and what would be the best fit for him in terms of maybe a top uh, tier team in uh, Europe? Alex, you go, I can't talk about this. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, for Jonathan David, I mean, there's only so much, uh, so many places he can go, given uh, how many goals he just scored this season, how many goals he scored across the last three seasons. The league on champion has played in the Champions League. I think it's something if you're leaving Lille, you want to make that next step. And I think that next step is, you know, it's either the Premier League or, you know, it's going to a top club in some of these leagues like a Bayern Munich, right? Or, you know, you go to a, a Real Madrid or Barcelona. And, you know, that sort of caliber of club. Um, and really, because of that, it depends on two factors who can afford him and, you know, who has the openings. And uh, for the most part, you look at a lot of the clubs in the, in the top six, some of them are, you know, a bit full at striker. So it closes a lot of doors. Uh, Man United could be an option depending on, you know, how their pursuits of certain players go. Tottenham could also be an option depending on, if Harry Kane leaves, because, you know, teams like United and others, you know, might want him. 
Um, you go elsewhere. I mean, a team like Napoli could also potentially be a decent little uh, jump up if a guy like Oshiman leaves like he seems like he wants to. Uh, you know, I think Bayern would always be a very natural fit given how he plays, how they play. And there has been interest um, there. They do need, uh, you know, a bit of a long-term striking option. Heck, for all we know, Real Madrid could be an option given that, they, you know, Benzema's left. That one's a little less likely. I feel like they're probably going to go for a more of a, a Oshiman or, or, or Kane type. But those are the sites of, uh, kinds of clubs you're talking about. Based on what we've heard from David, what we've seen, what we know, I feel like, you know, the likeliest is probably Premier League. That seems to be kind of where he's leaning. And because of that, I'd say United or Tottenham, just because I don't think he's going to go to a, a club outside the quote unquote big six. Although, you know, I would, I, I'd say a club like Brighton fits him immensely and they're in Europe, but I don't think we see that from him. Um, so I'd say probably one of those two, but if not, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a club like Napoli sweeps in, because they'd probably be one of those clubs that would sneakily be able to afford him have obviously uh, Champions League, given that they just won the title and, and play a very fluid system where a guy like David could come in and, and shine. So I feel like that would be kind of one of those those sleeper ones. Although, uh, yeah, uh, it would be nice if Bayern could slide and we could get two Canadians. But uh, who knows? Maybe not given all of Bayern's drama the uh, recently. Yeah. I, I want to go move to, to Project 8 because when we talked last time, there was no Project 8. There was some murmurs about a women's domestic league uh, starting. Um, what what do you guys think the impact will be of a, a new uh, domestic women's league uh, in, in Canada in 2025? And uh, yeah, just um, what, what do you guys think about that? I It's obviously long overdue because as influential already as the CPL has been, just in terms of the pipeline for the men's player pool, the fact that the women's player pool is still as strong as it is without a domestic league kind of goes to show you the potential this has to really bolster it. If you give players even more opportunities at home, um, it's clear that at least one or two ownership groups are very committed. You just have to find more of those. Um, I'm also very intrigued to see what the details of all of these sponsorship agreements are with project eight, because look by name, it's great. And by potential investment, that's huge but you need to have the right terms. You need to have the committed ownership groups. You need to have the, the constant fan support. So now that the opportunities are there to potentially support women's soccer in this country, it's now time for everybody to put their monies, to put their money where their mouths are in terms of actually putting those dollars behind those teams, behind the women's league and making sure that this thrives because like every league, it's going to have losses. Of course, the CPL is posting losses. And that's what you expect for the first five, six years of a league's existence, especially a soccer league in Canada. It's now time to be able to, first of all, have the committed ownership groups, but also have the commitment of the fans as well in order to make sure that this thing thrives as much as it can. And I think it's going to be a huge win for the players, first and foremost. I think it's something where it's long overdue to have a pipeline um, so you're not forced to go abroad or go university if you don't want to you have that chance to grow become a professional in your own backyard and then see where the game takes you from there right you can you know still i guess eventually go to university if you don't feel the pathway is for you you know but it's nice just to have that developmental pathway because we've let far too many players through the cracks it'll help the coaching as well because you know we need a lot more canadian women's coaches 
I think there's just so much underdeveloped on the just the playing infrastructure side alone that will be filled with this without mentioning the chance to inspire a whole generation who have only get gotten to watch their national team heroes at home and not these players week in, week out. And I think all those factors are immense. I think it's pretty critical to have that that league in place. Um, how it actually necessarily in the end sets up where these other ownership groups are going to come from. Of course, we have three teams, but we've heard of eight teams being ready for kickoff and kickoff is like quickly approaching. It's halfway through 2023 and the league's supposed to kick off in spring of 2025. So like things have to start moving in a bit of a quicker pace. Um, but it, it, it's a, it's a needed, needed uh, part of the Canadian soccer structure. Uh, the questions that I have are very similar to, what P- Peter has suggested is what are the terms of these agreements? How much money is actually going towards the leagues? Um, who are the owners of AFC Toronto city and where's that money coming from? Um, and just going across the country, who's going to invest in this, who's going to sign up to have quite a few losses over the next few years. We've seen studies from various people and various organizations say that Canada is ripe to make money at a woman's sports league. Um, Unfortunately, we haven't seen the evidence of that yet. We haven't seen the evidence of that through the Toronto Six, the one professional women's sports team uh, in this country playing in the PHF and hockey. Um, they won a championship, so it'll be interesting to see where that can potentially grow. Um, but it, there's just so many questions about not just a Canadian league, but a Canadian women's league in a country that has in the past not proven to be able to support leagues of its own or women's leagues at any point um there's just so many questions surrounding project date it's much needed canada needs a domestic league but from a business perspective it's there's a lot of question marks hmm. yeah and, and how optimistic are you that it gets off the ground in, in 2025 like it, it sounds as though you both feel as though that might not necessarily be the case I yeah, say it, sound, it sounds very soon. It sounds quite soon, to be honest. Like just because you've had just the one announcement, well, I guess two, technically three, because there are going to be two kind of already established teams that will probably have stadium plans arranged. But then you got to have stadium plans for everybody else. You got to build rosters, and that's another thing too. Like you also have to convince a certain number of players to play on a certain salary that they might not be used to. Now, some may have no problem with that. They just want to see the game grow. They want to see the league grow. But there are others who need to obviously watch out for themselves financially. So that's going to be another obstacle to overcome. And I think that to do that in about two years is a lot, possibly three years. Like you could have it coincide with the World Cup bump, right? When Mm -hmm. it comes to Canada, when it comes to North America, and then you can kind of ride that wave. And so then you have a win-win situation where you give yourself extra time, but then also a little bit of extra exposure and potential advertising opportunities to help the league get off the ground. Yeah, I, I also think that you have to look at what other women's leagues have done in, in North America. The re, the reality is this is in Europe. You can look at Europe in many aspects. You can look at, a, like, architecturally, they can build buildings a lot quicker than you can build a building here because there's so much uh, red tape that you have to have to get over in Canada, um, it's going to be a challenge to get this kicked off in 2025. Um, it's going to be a challenge to, to make it look like it's not League One, because in League One, some players get paid, not many, but some do. Um, but, I mean, it's not enough to like make a living. Um, and it was only 
next season that the PHF is going to be able to pay their players enough to turn full-time. It's been part-time up to this point through eight seasons, I believe now. So like that's the most successful women's hockey league and that's hockey. Um, And so like the NWSL has got it figured out. The WNBA figured it out, but they both got support from MLS and the NBA. Um, The CPL is not necessarily in a place. CSB is not necessarily in a place to put that support towards a women's league. I'd love to see it, but I mean, just that the money coming in is, is not significantly enough. Um, Of course the CPL operating at a loss as well. So there's a lot of questions I have around the viability of the league. And I know that word is something that has sort of struck a string um, with a lot of the, the people around uh, project eight and a domestic league, but there's still questions I have. I want to see a professional setup, professional training facilities, professional stadiums. Like if it looks too close to U sports or league one, then is that really what we were going for? That seems a lot sort of like what the WPSL was planning with their big Canadian hype video a couple of years ago. Um, so it's, you've got to set up a professional league and I'm just, I think that 2025 might be a little bit too ambitious, um, but I'm happy to be proven wrong. I, I want to go to the, the, the women's national team because obviously, hopefully if there is a domestic league, which it seems as though there will be, in Project 8, it will obviously impact soccer and the women's team for, for years and, and generations to come. Um, but to the team on the field, they have a huge World Cup this summer. Um, there's obviously, we alluded to at the beginning, the animosity between them and, and the um, and Canada soccer with the women's national team. They've made a preliminary roster of about 25 uh, players will be cut by two. What do you make of their chances at the World Cup? I know you guys talked about it in your podcast and and maybe as well the roster that Bev uh, Priestman uh, put out there a couple of days ago. Yeah, the roster itself, not a whole lot of surprises, more so pleasant surprises, I guess, like Nichelle Prince making it, like Desiree Scott making it, which kind of goes to show you that they're at the very least in contention to be at the World Cup just based on their injuries. Um, even if they don't, it's still a solid enough squad on paper. The only questions that you would have are what's the midfield going to look like? What's the front line going to look like? That's probably the biggest one to answer just because of all the players that are informed from Vienne to Heidema to, to Chloe Lacasse and, and everyone in between. And how do you set that up in conjunction with the midfield as well, with Julia Grosso being in great form? With Jesse Fleming being in good form, how do you balance it? Do you put Quinn in there? Do you put Desiree Scott in there to maybe help balance things out? Do you go with a hybrid of some sort? Those are all questions to answer because it's going to have a massive implication on how they perform at the tournament. It's a really difficult balanced group. Like you can make a case for every single team getting out of the group. That's the thing. Now, the bright side is once they do get out of the group, we know that they have the wherewithal and the defensive discipline to be able to grind out games and just get through knockout tournaments as we saw in the Olympics. So that could very much help them in that regard, but it all comes down to, are they just going to get the timely scoring? Cause if there's one thing that we've learned about Canada, when they play against elite teams, it's a couple of things. One, they don't tend to cope very well when teams press them high. And number two, they just can't seem to get the quality finishing that sometimes plagues them at that level. They have the talent now to be able to solve that, Second question, 
The first one is really going to be the big one. And are they going to have the midfield balance to be able to cope with some of these really excellent European as well as now South American teams? Because there have been big strides made by some of the South American countries in women's soccer as well. Yeah, it's going to be a challenge for Canada. There's a case for everyone in the group. Um, the global women's soccer world has exploded in quality. There's not really an easy out of the World Cup anymore. I don't think you're necessarily going to be seeing those 13-0 blowouts like we saw even four years ago. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a challenge. Canada's um, equalized a little bit uh, to the rest of the world um, just because so many nations have, have caught up. Um yeah, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, they could win the whole thing. Um, I think a victory would be a semifinal uh, would be great. Um, like getting a, a bronze medal uh, at the World Cup, I think it could be pretty darn cool. Um, but in terms of winning the, the whole thing, I'm less audacious about that than I was maybe initially coming off the gold medal. Hmm. Uh, well, like, I know you guys talked about it in your show, but... Is it is it quarters? Like, what do you think is maybe a realistic kind of goal? Quarters or semis, I'd say. I think yeah, quarters I is kind of the expectation. Um, whenever Canada goes into an international women's tournament, um, but semis would be very much uh, amazing—a victory. Like that would be above expectation. Yeah, so somewhere 100%. in between there. Yeah. Agreed. Is is there is there a player or a couple players that you think might be able to break out? Canada who might that be what what players are there to watch on on this team that uh fans might not be as well know know as well as as prior uh, tournaments when you say that the first thing that stands out would be Jade Riviere because when you look at the qualities Ashley Lawrence could bring at left back Jade Riviere can bring the same ones at right back so that could give you a very balanced attack in that way on either flank um yes she hasn't played a lot for Man United for a variety of reasons but we know she has the quality. She's done super, super well in every single game she's played for Canada, especially on the big stage. That's the thing. She's still very young, and she's already has she already has the poise of a veteran, which is always good to see. I'd also keep a decently close eye on Simi Arujo to see if she can make the squad, because in the few games she's gotten in the midfield, has not looked out of place at all. And she could also, I feel, help with the depth because she can give you so many different things, especially on the ball, but defensively she covers a lot of ground too. So if you need someone who can kind of do a little bit of everything, she might be someone you could lean on for sure. I think it'll be interesting to see who necessarily takes up the reins as Canada's sort of offensive catalyst. Um, we all know it's not Christine Sinclair anymore. She's dropped more into the midfield. Um, Jordan Heidema is in the form of her life with, uh, with OL rain. So could it be her and, sure she's been around for a while now on the national team stage but that's not to say that she hasn't necessarily had one of those sort of like coming out tournaments where she's easily the best player on Canada same can be said for uh, players who haven't necessarily taken those reins whether that's Clarissa Laracy she's been playing well for Hawken uh, whether that's um, I mean like Marie Yasmin Aladu is in the squad I don't think she'll make the, the final roster but like she's been in great form for Familias House so like there's a lot of options on the more attacking side of the pitch for Canada. Um, still questions around who that out and out striker is going to be, who that goal scorer is going to be for Canada. Adriana Leon has had her moments where she she has that, but she hasn't been playing a ton for uh, for the Portland Thorns. Um, so a lot of options up front, and I think any of those players could have a bit of a coming out tournament. 
Well, I'm really excited to, to watch the World Cup and, and obviously watch you, you or listen to you guys' coverage on, on Northern football. I have a quick question, and I know, Peter, you went on radio about this, and but, but for both of you, how excited are you to see Messi in the MLS? And I, I'm thinking about it in the Canadian context. Like, what impact could just Messi be in the MLS and going to Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver have on, on Canadian soccer? I mean, just, just just like it would anywhere else, it's just going to pack the stadiums. It's going to sell shirts. It's going to just bolster the overall appeal of the league. Um, you know, and, and that's what I think people kind of forget about when they talk about, well, why is MLS funding and, and all the league sponsors funding the signing of one player for my rival team? Well, this is why, because it's going to buoy everybody else. It's going to bolster the club values. It's going to drive fans to the stadium and you know i I remember as well um ben uh, you and myself alex uh, i believe manuel veth um Mm. it was after the pacific vancouver game and we were talking about um just getting fans out to cpl games and you were saying that one of the reasons why you're now very into soccer was you went to a whitecaps game when you were 11 and got hooked on that ever since that could have the same effect because people see messi on the tv these kids see messi they finally get to see him in person and they see him one time and then maybe they're enticed to watch the local team a bit more or even just watch the league a bit more. And then it just grows from there. So it could have a significant knock on effect in so many ways, J- just for the simple purpose of if you come one time, you never know what can happen in terms of your overall fandom in the future. I think people will certainly come back. The It's exciting overall. I'm just like ecstatic about it. I don't care if he's playing for a rival team or like, I would rather him, like, as you can see, I'm in my childhood bedroom here and I've got Whitecaps posters on the wall. And I don't think we've hid the fact that the three of us grew up as Whitecaps fans, but I would have rather seen him in the Western Conference because then he would be coming to Vancouver to play more games. Um, But just having him in the league is is massive for raising the profile of the league. Um, You're going to see absolutely packed stadiums. Um, for teams that no, don't necessarily always pack their stadiums, you're going to see sellouts in Chicago. You're going to see sellouts in Vancouver if he comes here. Um, I think one thing that's a shame is he's playing at a temporary stadium in Miami uh, or in Fort Lauderdale. Um, it would have been great to see him at um, Atlanta, like just a, I, I don't know, a bigger stadium. It would have been great to see him dare I say New York City FC um, because just you're you're in such a major area um but i i just think it, it's fantastic that he's coming to the league and more people will see the league more people will go to games um and even if you retain two percent of that that's millions right so like it, it's um it's a massive boost for mls for north american soccer um it's a shame that he's going to a team that doesn't have many prospects of postseason or trophies outside of the u.s open cup um but like it's certainly exciting. And if he can drag them to the playoffs as well, that will be one of the, the most miraculous savior runs of a soccer player ever, I think. So how realistic do you think that is? Because I feel like it could happen. Very minimal. Um I I I'm a, I have reserved expectations for him in the league, to be honest. Um, I think there's still a lot of aspects about MLS that can be challenging to overseas players. Um yes, he's messy, he's not uh aging Frank Lampard, Steven Jarrett, he, he's not that, but I do think that 
he's not going to go out and score five goals a game as some people kind of expect him to. I saw one Canadian sports pundit say that he's going to score like 50 goals a season. I mean, like maybe I wouldn't have said Holland could do it in the Premier League. So anything's kind of possible, but like, I I just don't necessarily see Messi being able to do that against um, what is a better league than a lot of people give it credit for. He may also not want to do it either. He might see himself maybe playing a little bit deeper on the pitch. Um, But one of the big challenges among others that he's going to face is just the tactical side in that you're not going to have as tactically aware players on the pitch as you might be used to at the highest level of the game. That was one of the things that drove Andrea Pirlo crazy was he would hit these absolutely perfect passes to a T in towards his fullback, but the fullback wouldn't recognize he had to make the run. It would go out for a throw in. And then there's Pirlo just shouting at him being like, what the hell are you doing? You have to make the run. And they're just not aware of this. So little things like that are going to take a lot of getting used to for him, but I'm sure he's, he's going to have a decent amount of patience. And I think a lot of the players are going to really try to up their games just to make sure that they don't disappoint uh, the King as it were. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you both. Uh, obviously, Alex, if for the uh, the people on YouTube who saw that he left maybe 15 minutes ago, but thanks to all of you guys for, for doing this. I really appreciate this. I had a lot of fun. I love your podcast and everyone should, should check it out um, in, in Northern football, but I just want to give you the floor. Is there anything at Northern football, anything else you guys both want to plug uh, just to, to end off? Yeah. Uh, follow the podcast at Northern football, subscribe, rate it, review it on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, follow all of us at Ben Steiner 00, at Galindo PW, at Alex Conge Ruzik, um, because that's where you can get maybe even more information if you so want it. And uh, yeah, also thanks again, Alex, for having us on. It was a pleasure this time with our hosts. So that was, that was always fun. And we're always happy to come back on again and chat always an open invitation well uh, i definitely wanted to have you on but i don't know if now you uh with canada soccer you might be too big for me uh going forward so we'll, we'll no see. i always have time don't worry and, uh, don't worry there might not good. be some things i can talk about but you yeah, know yeah. i can always yeah, come yeah. on right well have a great time uh, at the at the gold cup and and ben i love following your stuff and uh thanks so much for for taking the time you both and alex of course uh, i'll uh, he'll i'll obviously dm him and, and say thanks as well so thanks so much guys and uh Uh, have a great summer. There's a lot of action coming up and it'll be a fun summer for you guys and, and Northern football.